you would open your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 is where we are in our study through the book of Acts together as a church, which we've been going through the last several weeks. If uh, you need a Bible, there are some in front of you, those blue Bibles, and you'll find the passage on page 914. If I told you that well, give you a little context. Uh, if you're new or visiting, our church is about 150 members. This church has been here for uh, over about 100 years. Uh, we are blessed to see the Lord working here. We're, li- we're glad you're here. Um, hopefully, even you'll taste and see what the Lord is doing among us, and you'll be encouraged by that in your time here, whether it's limited or you're looking for a church home. Please come back to the membership classes. But that's a little bit of who we are. If I told you that one year from today, we would have not 150 members, but 500 members in this church. I'm not prophesying right now. But if I told you that and you could know that it would happen, what would you guess? What would you guess would be the reason for the growth? We might make different guesses. Maybe something general like, well, the spirit must have moved in a dramatic way. Or practical. Well, we did a door-to-door evangelistic campaign and we invited all our neighbors and they chose to show up. Or maybe a programmatic reason. We developed a children's ministry that was more robust than parents wanted to bring their kids to it. I would guess no one is thinking, well, there must have been a good conflict that happened in the church. I'm not talking about the kind of conflict that we saw during COVID where some churches became kind of a gathering point for people frustrated with something else going on outside the world. I'm not talking about the kind of conflict that comes from the outside world, but I'm I'm talking about a growth that happens because the word ministry of our church and our gospel witness advanced and was fruitful as a direct result to how internal conflict was handled. That may not be where our minds go, but that's where scripture goes this morning in Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. Some of you looked at the text this morning and thought, how is he going to preach through two chapters of Acts? I am not going to preach through two chapters of Acts. I'm going to preach through seven verses of Acts. I plan to do that, but for reasons, uh, various reasons. We're just going to do that part. We're going to stop at chapter 6, verse 7, starting in verse 1. And then I hope, Lord willing, to cover the rest, 6, 8 through 8, 3 next week. But Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7, and the rest that goes into chapter 8, verse 3, do connect through the character Named Stephen. Stephen is chosen by the church in this passage to help serve the church. And then Stephen will be martyred in the next section. In both sections, we see God doing difficult things to advance his kingdom. Using difficult things to advance his kingdom. And the topic I began our time with this morning, church growth. That topic is typically dominated by pragmatic considerations. 
The decisions and strategies often employed for church growth are quite often guided by an intense urge to find what works. And success, as we view it, is often determined by what is visibly successful. If we apply ourselves for more things to happen, then more things will happen. More people will come. More dollars coming in and given to different and various ministries will mean more ministry and more people. There may be elements of truth in all of that. But from God's perspective, is that really fundamentally what makes his church grow? And how do our convictions on growth inform what we do when problems arise in the church? These are relevant questions. Not because I think, not because I know there are a lot of ideas about church growth out there, but there's also quite a bit of conflict happening inside churches. As our culture gets more politically charged and divided, the trend seems to be seeping into our churches. As less and less of our relationships are happening in person in front of each other, We see brothers and sisters in the church treating each other as if they are just like all the other people they interact with throughout the week. Disembodied people through screens to whom we can say whatever we want with no concern for the relational consequences because there really is no relationship to begin with. The presence of relational strife in our culture may lead to some doubt that the church's unity can survive. When that kind of conflict enters our gathering. Can the church resolve her conflicts? Or will she, like the world has often done, burn the house down because there can be no peace? Well, in our passage this morning, the church in Acts experiences a threat in the form of internal conflict. And the way that they address that conflict leads To good growth. We'll see why this morning. But before we open the text, I want us to see the opportunity. The opportunity in front of us as a church is to grow through various conflicts. And although we often measure church growth in terms of numbers, that's not primarily what I mean by growth. I mean... By growth, the experience of God's spirit bearing fruit among us. The experience of God's presence with us. The visible evidence that we are being faithful to his ways. And that he is showing fruit through the evidence of saving work through us. That's the kind of fruit I mean when I say church growth. So from Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7, I'd like to point out four lessons that teach us how we grow in conflict. While this passage pertains especially especially to conflict, I think you can take these lessons and use them for many of the internal difficulties we might experience as a church. So if you just want to kind of bookmark the sermon, maybe we come back to it at a later time in our church life when it's applicable, that would be great. Maybe there are other things you can apply it to right now. My aim is to encourage us to prioritize word ministry, follow the Spirit's direction, and take the gospel opportunity to grow in our conflicts. 
I said there will be four lessons. I'll go through them one at a time. I won't give them to you up front. I think that would be a little overwhelming. It'd be a lot of words. So I'll just name them as we come to them. But let's open the Bible together. Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas, Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. There they set, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And before we get to the lessons, let me lay out the context of what's happening here. There have been some, some bumps in the early church history of Acts that we've been going through in this book. But all in all, the story of Jesus' work through his witnesses has been a great one. Thousands of people believing in Jesus as Savior turn their lives over to him as their king. Those believers are regularly meeting together, sharing what they have with each other. Miracles are happening. The Spirit is working. It was a high time to be a member of the church. I imagine much of what you would have seen as a Christian in those days would have been encouraging to you and to your faith as a believer. But then this test comes that we just read. It's a different kind of test. It's an internal test test, a conflict, one that if not corrected or addressed could have threatened the unity of the church and especially because of the perceived partiality that was going on between its members. So widows apparently were coming regularly and the church was seeking to help them and meet their needs. As a widow, there would have been hard it would have been hard for you to find ways to provide subsistence for yourself. Culturally, the church recognized that and addressed it. So widows, I think, within the community were coming and receiving something, whether it was a daily meal or money to purchase food, coming to receive it from the church. The, the church, in James 1.27's words, was engaging in pure and undefiled religion before God the Father as it visited widows in their need. But there was one set of widows, the Hebrew-speaking ones, who were getting served while another group, the Greek-speaking ones, that is the Hellenists, were getting left out. So favoritism is being shown on the basis of your background. You might imagine this kind of thing happening today around language or ethnicity or socioeconomic status. And while the problem might immediately seem more logistical, someone was just not getting served. Got to figure out the logistic problem. Underneath, there is a much greater concern that the apostles recognize and address. 
The church, united by Jesus Christ, is a place where the world is meant to witness the power of Jesus to bring us together as one, diverse though our backgrounds might be. Any threat to that kind of unity because of preference given to some aspect of our diversity over another, well, you see how that could seriously impede or even ruin a gospel witness. I think that's what the apostles perceived was at stake. Think about if we began having, having more people come join our church from other cultures. Maybe more people coming for whom English is not their first language. Maybe more people coming who would not associate themselves as high income, middle income, lower middle income, or low income, but impoverished. Think about if those people began coming into our doors and we were glad for them to be here, but we never had them in our homes. Or think about if members who have lived in Brookside for several years only built relationships with other Brookside people in the church. These are the kind of potential manifestations of what's happening here. Those kinds of cliques that form in the church tell the world that a life in the church goes on just like the life outside. Whatever life it is we claim to have as Christians, it's, it's really only that it's a life where we love to be with those just like us. I hope the Lord will make us sensitive as a church to see those as threats to a gospel witness. The apostles certainly did. When this comes to their attention, they address it. Now, all of this is going on while the church is growing. There is a type of growing pains that any church is susceptible to in change or numerical growth. People can fall through the cracks. Maybe you've experienced that yourself. Churches can miss opportunities to serve those who are truly in need. We can have visitors come in and leave, not ever coming back because they feel they weren't welcomed. Or they were made to feel that they were different and didn't belong. I wouldn't be surprised if we're not facing this kind of thing right now. I wouldn't be surprised if we face it over the years. The church in Acts leans on the pastors, the apostles at the time, to help the church address these areas. Those apostles naturally receive the complaints. The members come with observations about how an aspect of ministry could better serve their church or a question about how they can, how the pastors or the leaders might improve something to make sure that we as a church are doing something better. I think there's an appropriate place for all that. And I'll tell you, as one of the pastors who receives this kind of input from you, gladly, I'll tell you that when I receive them, me and the other elders, we don't always know what to do in situations like this. Uh, so know that about us. You, we need you to pray for us. That we will carry out our responsibilities with wisdom from God. That God would, in his help, give us a clear eye to the true needs of our congregation. And I would also say the way the apostles deal with this situation becomes instructive for both how pastors pastor in the church, but also instructive for the whole church, how we can join together in the ministry God gives us. 
So on to the lessons. There are a few lessons the apostles teach us as they approach this that I'd like to highlight this morning. These lessons give us direction in how to navigate growth or change in a way that upholds our unity while also giving appropriate attention to our diversity. And lesson number one is this. The word of God in all things must remain the priority. The word of God in all things must remain the priority. The apostles identify a potential move they want to avoid. Notice they don't offer to fix the problem personally. If they step in and sort out the daily distribution problem and figure out a way to help kind of minimize these tensions, well, that will pull them away from something they're doing. That they understand to be a priority. It will pull them away from the ministry of the word and prayer. Studying, teaching, preaching, training people in the word of God. So if their bandwidth available for prayer closes due to increased activity in this area. The apostles understand that that will make the whole culture of the church potentially less spirit inclined and dependent. So in great wisdom. A wisdom I envy. They resist the tyranny of the urgent. And maintain their commitment to what best serves the church over time. A faithful word and prayer ministry. Now I count it providential as I do every week. That we are in the passage that we're in. I want to say to you as one who has recently been made lead pastor. I want to say to you as members from one of your pastors that I find that I am regularly feeling the pressure on this issue. So on the one hand, I have a great desire to love and serve and care for each of you. As God has laid that responsibility before me, I take it very seriously and I genuinely want to be of great service. I want to pour my life out for you. So it will be a hard thing when any of you ask something of me as your pastor for me to say no. That's hard for me to do. But I think the church as a whole needs and I think expects that I and other pastors will say no to things. In order to make sure we're giving ourselves as elders, to priorities that will ultimately best serve this church. Priorities that will protect and preserve the unity of our church. So I see many ways that you are acknowledging that and recognizing and saying, yes, we agree. We don't want you to try to do everything. We didn't hire you for that. So thank you for setting aside men and women who are deacons in this church who are eager to give their lives to bear up these practical responsibilities. Thank you, deacons, for serving that way. I'll talk more to you in a second. Thank you for being members who see needs and addressing them without even actually raising any notice to it at all. You just quietly serve. You're helping maintain the priority of our church by doing that. 
Please acknowledge, as I said before, that your elders do not have perfect wisdom about the best way to focus our leadership efforts. So would you please pray for us to know how to best focus our leadership efforts that will help this church? We try to do this in our elders meetings just to let you know what we're doing. Um, we're, we're spending a good amount of our usually two-hour meetings praying. Praying through our directory, praying through different needs we know are going on in the church, praying for things that are coming up in light of the direction the apostles are setting here. Um, And understand, too, that you have total permission to minister to other people here. You do not need to go through a pastor. You have the word, you have the spirit, you can be used. So just a blank check for every member in this church. Spend as much in ministry effort and ministry love as you want. Now sometimes the temptation can be to abandon the word to protect growth. The culture says we're being too dogmatic. And they won't listen to teaching that includes sin from the pulpit. Or a few voices inside the church say they'd like to start hearing more about the relevant political or social issues more than repeated emphasis on the gospel. This pressure is applied and could potentially reduce word ministry in order, as a human would think, to maintain a growing ministry. But we must remember that God's metric for growth is not a human one. He considers faithfulness to his truth a major measurement of a healthy church. He understands his word and the gospel declares as the most relevant thing to anyone ever living that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Even when governments come and go and social fads ebb and flow. The apostle's action to protect and preserve the word ministry teaches us what we need to keep at the center of our church. A dedication to God's word, an ongoing dependence on his spirit to lead us. Which leads me to my second lesson, lesson number two. For how to pursue growth in conflict. Lesson number two. The solution to our internal challenges will be found in following God's word through the lead of the spirit. The solution to our internal challenges will be found in following God's word through the lead of the Spirit. Now, the solution the apostles propose is that the word keeps getting preached, and the people who help who help tackle the problem will be people who are evidently spirit-filled people. Did you see that? In verse 3. Apostles say, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. So their public reputation and the fact that they were filled with the spirit are their main qualifications. It can often seem like the best person to help tackle a problem is the person most experienced in that area. Like, for example, the early church here, if it was a matter of getting people fed... We'll look around the congregation and see who is a professional caterer. That's obviously the person who should do this. 
But the apostles, but the apostles' instinct is instructive. They understand that even meeting a practical problem in God's church requires spiritual direction. Everything we do is meant to be vitally connected to Jesus Christ. He is the head, we are the body. In him we live and move and have our being. In the apostles' direction in verse 3, to pick men full of the Spirit and of wisdom, we are led to understand that the Spirit is very interested to exert his lead in and through all matters of our church. Not just the preaching and the prayer parts, but the service parts as well. This weekend at the men's retreat, uh, if you've heard stories of eggs being thrown at each other at the end, you might have understandably wondered, what were they doing? Did they spend their whole weekend like that? No, we didn't. We actually were very helped to go through and see major ways that we could be instructed by the book of Proverbs. We saw how that book gives us a choice between choosing a path of wisdom in our life or a path of folly. I think we often think about how good it is for our own lives to be wise, and that's true. But also know that your daily choices, men, and your daily choices, women, and your daily choices, children... To choose what is wise, that's actually going to serve people around you too. It's going to serve our church. The more people delighting to follow Jesus' way, rubbing up against others who desire to, to do the same, well, the more a whole church is going to walk in the way of Jesus. So let me appeal to each member here. Or to you who are visiting and you're a member of meaningfully committed to your church where you're coming from. Let me appeal to all of us. Pursue the path of wisdom that Jesus lays out for us. The one that he shows you by his life and his example. And the one he gives you through his spirit and his word. Pursue that path. Do this for your own spiritual good. But also think how in pursuing wisdom you serve Christ's church. So let me give you a practical question to ask yourself and answer this afternoon. How will I become more wise this week? How will I become more wise in in God's definition? How will I become more wise this week? For some of you, it might be praying more for God's guidance in your life. For others, it might be reading more his wisdom in his word. Maybe others, it may be opening up your life to others who are full of the Spirit to gain wisdom from them. For all of us, Jesus' grace is available to us to walk in the way of his wisdom. But we must choose to follow him in it. So how will you become more wise this week? Mark out the way that Jesus is leading you. And choose to follow him. And brothers and sisters, as you do that. I think the Lord is going to put you to good use here. Really good use. As I said before, there's no one person, there's no one pastor in this church that has a monopoly on ministry. There is an equation being laid out for us that will come to pass every time we follow it. 
A lot of word in us and a lot of spirit in us will be a lot of ways we see God work. A lot of word in us and a lot of spirit in us will equal a lot of ways that we see God work. And as we look to the spirit to lead us as a church and give attention to God's word, those priorities become the way that the spirit fills us as individuals and provides us with wisdom to serve each other, which leads to my, my third lesson. Lesson three, for how the church grows in conflict. The Spirit provides people in the church who help the church stay united. So specifically in this passage, the apostles give the responsibility to the church. Pick the people. Uh, Look at their qualifications. Set them apart for this ministry. Um, Here we see just one example of many in the New Testament where God gives the final authority to the church in the hands of the church. Not to any one pastor or church leader or, or institution outside a church, but to the church itself. So where do we find such people? Do we look to resumes and professional backgrounds? Do we hire people? I think, I think this passage says we should first look inside the church. Understand that the qualifications for the tasks are given through the Spirit, and so we look to the evidence of people's lives with God. We look for people who depend on the Spirit to lead them. People who know God's Word and choose the wisdom God's Word provides for their own lives. So in Acts 6, I think what happens here becomes kind of a prototype for what we then do later and is explained in the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 for the office of deacon in the church. This is kind of the beginning glimpse of where that's headed. And that process is much the same as the one we follow as a church. The elders, seeing a practical area of needed service, approach men and women in our congregation who seem, from the evidence of their lives, to be full of the Spirit and wise in how they live their lives. We put those people before you, and by your approval, you appoint them to help the church meet Areas of ministry need that we see as priorities. So for our church right now, that's things like our finances, our children's ministry, our hospitality, our ordinances like the Lord's Supper this morning, child safety, music ministry, audiovisual needs. But there are probably many more that we might eventually see and apply people to. That's always kind of a live question, actually. So if you're currently a member and are able to serve in any of these areas I just listed, let me encourage you, reach out to one of the people you've appointed to help us as a church meet that need and say, hey, I'm available and willing to be applied to help serve our church. And to you as deacons who are serving now or who have served in the past, thank you. Only God knows how many little ways you've protected our unity and wisely helped protect us from division through what you have done. Though your service is often unseen, you are an essential part of the evident unity that we enjoy. Now, the seven men chosen by the church were obviously a good choice because the text indicates that the church did not crash and burn in conflict, but it grew. There's no specific mention of how the situation got resolved, but I think we're to assume that the church, with the appointment of these servants, experienced unity. 
even when the practical realities of their diversity threatened to pull them apart. So why were these seven men effective in how they led the church to this good unified outcome? Well, we might say because of the wisdom of the church to follow the course the the apostles laid out. Or we might say it was because the apostles shrewdly suggested people who, judging from their names, were Greek speakers. So like met like in the problem. I wonder if the church in Jerusalem wasn't largely Hebrew-speaking Jewish converts. If so, I think the church's humility is evident here. Instead of protecting and leaning into the status quo of the cultural majority or accusing the minority group of complaining too much, they actually saw an opportunity to adjust and serve those who were not like themselves, but who were united to them in Christ Jesus. The ability to reach unity in the midst of diversity, I think that's why these men with the Spirit's help were so effective. I think that's why the Apostles' Council is so wise. The apostles and the men appointed and the church as a whole saw this as a gospel opportunity, not a threat to their identity. For the church united in Jesus Christ and following the lead of the spirit and prioritizing the direction of the word of God that is being given to us. That is what a conflict that arises within us can be for us. A gospel opportunity. Which leads me to lesson four, my last one, and my longest one. Church conflict is a gospel opportunity. Conflict is not the only arena to display the gospel in our life as a church. Don't mean to suggest that. It's not the only way God will use us. We can share the gospel in our words. We can give ourselves in loving service and sacrifice in our homes. We can testify the power of God to make us new and how we talk about our priorities to serve Jesus with our coworkers. All those things are ways we can do it. But conflict, because of what it is, still remains a very visible place where the truth of the gospel makes a huge difference. In how we choose to respond to conflict. So I'm taking a lesson here. Based on how the conflict presents itself. And how it was resolved in Acts 6, 1 through 7. And I'm meaning for us to look at it for a minute. Without the spirit of God. Conflict between us often becomes an occasion to choose ourselves. If you want to read about that. Read the beginning of James 4. So this is the way it can go. We experience an offense or a wrong done to us, and we swiftly distance ourselves from the person responsible. We jump to conclusions about why they did that, and we assume we have perfect clarity in our judgment. We fail to recognize how our actions or our words could have contributed to the conflict. Nor do we think that what we did had any part to play Or will have any part to play in potentially finding any resolution to the problem. So we sit and we stew. And we wait for the other person to act in a very specific way. That we've not even talked to them about. 
And when they don't come, we talk to others. And in our words, we paint a picture in others' minds that favors our image and discredits the person we're in conflict with. The longer this goes, the harder we get to the suggestion that reconciliation could occur. The wounds are allowed to fester. The more we think about the injury done to us, the greater we exaggerate the effect and the inability for us to forgive. We don't pray for the other person because we've stopped loving them. Our prayers become more and more self-focused and self-justifying. And at some point we conclude we can't live in the same church with the person. And when we finally bring it up as an issue, if we ever do, it's to demand something be done about the other person or to explain that this is why we're leaving the church. Now, please do not misunderstand me in saying that this is why everyone chooses to leave a church. It's not my intention. But I've been a pastor long enough to know that this is often why people leave churches. Because for whatever reason, they couldn't find the gospel opportunity in conflict. But instead saw it only as an occasion in which they must choose themselves. Now, consequently, this is why marriages either often end or remain in gridlock. And there are some spouses here who need to wake up to the responsibility of the choice you're making to keep your marriage conflicted due to your unwillingness to take the gospel opportunity for unity that the gospel provides you. Here's why that path will not go well in our relationships or in our church from God's perspective. Because he refuses to give his spirit to support selfish conflict. We should not expect yes answers to our prayers when our desires are for our own way. At the cost of gospel-based unity with a friend, a family member, or a brother or sister in Christ. Let me outline the path that will go well. The path Jesus laid out in the gospel. A path that started with each of us. Each of us. Locked in conflict with a holy God. Because we were unwilling to choose his way before our own. If anyone had a legitimate complaint of wrongdoing, it was God. As the God who made us and who is God, he deserved from us full love, full worship, and full devotion. And we hardly gave a fraction of what he was rightly due. And we never gave with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength engaged in it. Instead of repenting of our sin and hate toward God that distanced us from him, we often just complain that God wasn't giving us enough. It wasn't a good enough life. It wasn't good enough circumstances. It wasn't enough, effectively, freedom from him being God in our life. 
We have come into this world, each of us, with our hearts locked in conflict against God. And God, knowing that none of us, none of us, would ever on our own come to our senses so locked in darkness and selfishness that we were, he planned instead to move toward us. Even though the burden to make peace was really on us, the offending party. He heard our unjustified complaints. And he chose to give mercy instead of vengeance. He saw our condition. Humans who make terrible choices and wreck our lives. And he chose in love to deliver his son to save us. God did not demand that we rise to make peace with him through righting all our wrongs. That would have been an impossible demand. God instead chose the very unlikely and unthinkable solution. Which was to absorb all our wrongs through the sacrifice of his obedient and sinless son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. When Jesus came here and he lived among men and women like us, the people who had conflict with him were the ones who would not hear and believe that he was the way. Everyone who heard him. And received what he came to give, that is life through his death and resurrection. Forgiveness of sin and an open way to a new life in him. All those people ended up with peace. Peace with Jesus. But those who rejected him grew harder still. Entrenched in their conflict with Jesus and with others. So which one are you? If you're troubled, conflicted, regularly angry, bitter, resentful, not at peace, one whose speech is often marked by complaints and ingratitude, it's likely that's the way it is because you're resisting Jesus' way. The conflict of your heart is there because of a choice you're making to refuse the opportunity the gospel presents you. Jesus came and lived in perfect peace with his father and then died on a cross to forgive you and me for the war we engaged against God and his rule in our life. And he died for anyone who knows that they need him to make their peace with God. And through his death, he pays for all our selfish choices, our bitter resentments, our angry demands, and the sinful consequences they bring. He takes them all willingly as punishment on himself. God chooses to love you, his enemy. He trains the, rep with the weapons of his wrath, not on you, but on his son at the cross. And there the war ends. The cross is where peace can be made in your heart if it isn't there already. It's an open invitation. Lay all the conflict down there, unbeliever. Lay it all down there. Believe in Jesus who died to save you from your foolish war with the living and mighty God. Lay all your conflict down at the cross, believer. Remember that Christ moved towards you when you committed the greatest offense. 
Though he deserved everything from you in obedience and worship and confession, he gave everything to you first to make it all possible. Christ's posture in conflict was to love first so that you might have the opportunity to love him in return. That's the gospel opportunity for each of us in conflict. Because Christ loved you, move to the one you have conflict with in love so that they might share the gospel opportunity of loving fellowship united together in Christ. And church, see the opportunity in our conflicts to testify to the glories of the cross of Jesus Christ. When we choose unity under that banner, instead of taking our separate corners, the world will witness the power of the gospel to unite sinners and make them one. The cross of Christ creates union with God and restores human divisions. There is no other power on earth that can do that. Now, if you notice, I'm going to close this. But if you notice in your bulletin, as I mentioned, I plan to preach a bigger section of Acts this morning. But I saw a gospel opportunity to encourage you. And I want to close with that encouragement. I didn't preach this message nor choose this particular emphasis I did because I see a problem in our church that needs to be fixed right now. To the contrary, I see the word increasing like in Acts 6-7. I see the spirit working here. I am regularly witnessing the power of the gospel to unite us. And I'm often hearing testimonies of visitors and new people who are experiencing the compelling draw in by the visible love we have for each other. That's what I see. I preach this because in God's providence, providence, this is the word in front of us. People are being added to our number. I trust more will come. But we know that the enemies of God... When they aim at God's kingdom, they shoot at her unity in Jesus Christ. By that strategy, Satan aims to take away both the key to our life together and perhaps the most compelling aspect of our gospel witness to the world outside. Church, we're going to come under attack. Problems inside here will threaten our church. But we rejoice in a God who can use even conflict cause us to grow. We're prepared with the gospel. We have a Christ crucified for our selfishness and raised for our peaceful lives with each other. We have the spirit that lives in us and gives us wisdom in choosing the path in which we give the grace we've been given and accept the role of peacemakers, not conflict perpetuators. I trust conflicts are going to come. And with God's help, the gospel opportunity in them will be the opportunity he leads us to take. And by the witness of his word, his spirit, and his gospel, people will be saved. And the church will increase. Let's pray. So, Father, we pray that you would make it so in our church. Lead us to have this kind of witness that grows in conflict because we prize the gospel, because the Spirit leads us, because you help us to protect and preserve a faithful witness to your word. 
make this, your word, instructive to us as individuals and as a church. We pray so not only that we as a church may grow in you, but also so that we might grow in seeing others come to know you through this peacemaking, gospel-prizing aspect of who we are and who you're making us to be. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.